Colossians chapter 3, very serious and relevant topic this morning, something that we all deal with, but just by way of review, uh, if you'll remember, Colossians is one of the prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul in response to his friend Epaphras that founded the church at Colossae, and he was just very concerned about a heresy that was just running rampant apostasy in the city. Not so much in the church, but he was afraid that it might make its way into the church. And there's two things that he very specifically dealt with. That's legalism and mysticism. Legalism uh, means that you're saved by your works. You try to make yourself right with God by the things that you do. And uh, good works can never erase broken laws. Good, the good things we do can never erase our sin. There's no scale in heaven to weigh those things out. And if there was, it would be like that with our sin. And so, uh, but mysticism is, uh, it's another way of people feeling as if they're super spiritual, that God somehow imparts to them divine knowledge through visions or uh, extra-biblical revelations or things like that. And in that case they ultimately become their own authority. Their authority becomes them and their own subjective experience because their authority is not coming from what God has already given in the revelation of His Word, Genesis 2 Revelation. And we've seen in these first few chapters how uh, Paul is really reminding the Colossian believers of who they are in Christ and about the gospel and about the person of Christ and just all these incredible doctrines and and then in chapter 3, as I've mentioned, and we're going to look at this several times today, and the, tr- the transitional verse in the book <clears throat> is chapter 3 and verse 1, where he has this condition, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And so he says, okay, you know the Lord, you love the Lord, you believe all these high and lofty doctrines, prove it. <laughs> Do something about it. There's no way that... We can know Christ in a personal way and there's no way that the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and that remains a secret for the entirety of our life. There's no such thing as a secret service Christian. Um, It's just not going to happen. And over the past few weeks, uh, we've been looking at uh, how to win against sexual sin and last week we dealt specifically with our thought life and victory over our thought life And Paul continues with these things. You know, if you're risen in Christ, there's going to be some things in your life that have to die. And they're not going to die by themselves. The Bible says we, uh, by the power of God, have to put those things to death. Um, And so let's continue with that thought. Um, I'll begin in verse 1 for sake of context. It says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the word. Lord, we thank you for this church. 
Thank you for salvation in Christ. Lord, we're just such a blessed people. And, and I pray that, Lord, we would realize that. We wouldn't take it for granted. But, Lord, we would just recognize how good you are to us, and not because of us, but in spite of us. Lord, would you empty me of sin and self and make preaching powerful and clear? I pray that if somebody's lost, uh, either among us this morning or maybe listening online, whatever the case may be, Lord, that they would be saved today, that you would give them repentance and that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We give these things to you and thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. We're going to look this morning at the sin of covetousness. The sin of covetousness. And really, before I even get into covetousness, I'm going to just briefly mention two other things that are directly tied to this. And it's, we read about it in our main text this morning, but in verse 5, it says mortify. That means put to death, kill it, mortify. We think about the mortician. This is talking about putting these things to death. This is not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's a command for those that are risen in Christ whose life is hid in Him. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness. We've dealt with those in the past couple of weeks. But then we see this phrase, inordinate affection. Now, inordinate affection, it simply means evil passions. And in fact... The word affection here comes from the Greek word pathos. Well, a lot of us are pretty familiar with that. It means passion. And um, this is a sinful desire that comes with a high level of emotion. Uh, evil passions are what leads people uh, to commit another, uh, to commit an act of violence against another person, possibly even killing them. Um, have you ever heard? the phrase, it was a crime of passion. A lot of times investigators, one thing they look for uh, at a violent scene or a murder scene, they want to see how the victim was killed because that can often determine if it was a crime of passion, if it's an overly violent situation, more than likely it was somebody that knew the victim because it was an emotional thing. If it was just a robbery, more than likely that's not going to happen. That's a crime of passion. It's uh, evil passion, this inordinate affection. These are sins that are tied to a high level of emotion and it's likely going to be a situation where a sin is committed in the heat of the moment. Um, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic or, you know, I know that, that gets nobody emotional in this room. Nobody gets passionate about somebody riding you on the bumper um, at least, you know, y'all are not helping me this morning, so I'm starting to feel like that's just me. So <laughs> maybe I need to drop, maybe I need to back the mule up and drop the plow for a little bit. Maybe it just got quiet because all of you are guilty. Amen. Just say amen or oh me. But it's a crime of passion. And, you know, to even think that we're capable of doing something like this, listen, any of us, are capable of pretty much anything. Even as Christians, listen, as Christians, we're new creatures. We have a new nature. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and yet we still live in this sinful flesh, this Adamic flesh. And this body has not been redeemed yet. One day it will be, and we're thankful for that. 
But for the moment, we're stuck in this epic battle between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5 maps that out very clearly. And in the heat of the moment, we can pretty much do anything. And so we need to be aware of these things. And it really tells us about the sinfulness of our own hearts. Um, And even though we do have this new imparted nature, we have to depend on the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer to put these things to death. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, all these, hey, these are super passionate issues, are they not? Uh, Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemy. I've always found it interesting that the Lord didn't have one good thing to say about what comes out of a human heart. Out of the human heart comes murders and adulteries. and Nothing good comes out of the human heart in its natural state. Even Paul as a saved man in Romans 7 said, In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And the sooner that we recognize that, the better off we're going to be. See, if you know who you are, and as we said a few weeks ago, you recognize the enemy within, well, then you know who you need to fight. (laughs) And it's that person that you see in the mirror every day. And so that's what inordinate affection is. Now, there's another phrase I want to mention in in connection with covetousness, and it's this next phrase we see in verse 5, evil concupiscence. And this is just a fancy term for evil desires. We say, what's the difference between evil passions and evil desires? Well, it's not much. It's very similar. And I would say the difference is the emotion itself. Um, Evil passions are sinful temptations um, at a high level of emotion, whereas uh, evil desires, it may be a desire that kind of smolders for a long time. The The evil passions is a five-alarm fire, and the evil desire smolders for a long time, maybe even boiling under the surface, undetected by the people around you, but it's still there. The difference is in the level of emotion. But either way, we need to recognize these things within us, repent, and remove ourselves from the situation, if at all possible. But this brings us to our main subject today that we want to deal with, And that is the sin of covetousness. Uh, It says in the end of verse 5, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the textbook definition of covetousness is a greedy desire for more. That's exactly what covetousness is, is a greedy desire for more than God wants you to have. Now, this is really important. I, I I can't even stress this enough. But all sin begins with a desire for more than what God wants us to have. And therefore, in a very real sense, covetousness is like a foundation for all sin. Going all the way back to the garden. You know what got Adam and Eve in trouble? Despite how good God had been to them, they wanted something more than God had given to them. In fact, the one thing that they couldn't have, I mean, they had health and prosperity and the presence of God and no sin and no suffering and no death and all of the things that we dream of when we think about a utopia. But they wanted the one thing that they couldn't have. And Satan came to him and he said, did God really say that? He, listen, he knows 
that when you eat, you'll become as gods, just like he is, knowing good and evil. And they thought, wow, that sounds better than what God has given me. And so covetousness is a very dangerous thing. It's a foundational sin because it leads to other sin. God takes covetousness so seriously that he listed it as one of the thou shalt nots in the Ten Commandments, right along with murder, theft, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry, and the list goes on. So God takes it very seriously. And in verse 5 here, Paul goes further in describing covetousness as being directly related to idolatry. He says covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice, he didn't say that covetousness was like idolatry. He didn't say it was similar to idolatry. He said covetousness is idolatry. Very serious things. And so we need to pay attention to this. Now, idolatry, if you're looking for a textbook definition of idolatry, it is seeking satisfaction in the creation rather than the Creator. Idolatry is the worship of the created and the creation rather than the Creator. We have placed something besides the Lord upon the throne of our hearts. That's what idolatry is. Covetousness can make a person's life miserable as well as the people around them. Now, we've all dealt with covetousness at some point. The question is, how do we put it to death? If we're commanded to mortify these things, how can we put covetousness to death within our own heart? Again, I'm going to give you a to-do list, but I want to remind you, as I always do, this is not, I'm not just merely appealing to your human will. I'm telling you, that in order to accomplish these things, you're going to have to be dependent upon God. Lord, this is the how, uh, but we don't have the power to do it without you. You may know the way to go, and if your car doesn't crank, it's not any good. And so we've got to ask God to help us get to where we need to be. So how how do we put this to death? got four things this morning that I want to look at. The first one being consciousness. And I'm talking about a consciousness of our covetousness. Look at verse 1. We're going to be in the, again in the first part of chapter 3 because he's dealing with the very reason that we would even care about doing these things. He said in verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. We are commanded to set our affection to the right thing, which is Jesus Christ. Heavenly things, eternal things, and not of things of the earth. And if this is this is very telling to me. If this was something that came naturally to us, if we just woke up every morning and just automatically thought on God and the things of God, and all these things came so naturally, (laughs) He wouldn't have to tell us as believers, hey, pay attention, hey, you need to look up and stop looking out so much. You need to have an eternal perspective and stop getting so hung up on the things of this world. That's why He commanded it, because it doesn't come naturally to us. And sometimes, our hearts and minds are so wicked that our thoughts and desires can be habits of wrong thinking and wrong doing, and we don't even realize it. You say, well, that 
No, I'm, I never do that. I'm fixing to prove you wrong. Uh, and I, I've had to pray and ask God to help me with this because it's just a learned habit. Uh, you, you know, every five seconds you'll be reaching for that phone. You'll be looking at something and won't even, won't even think about it. You'll just be scrolling and not even think about it. And you're like, wait, how did I even do that? How did, my, how did my phone get out of my pocket into my hand like this? Don't get all quiet on me. Y'all know you do it. I'm talking about some folks wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is, because they're, they're feeling for that, they're trying to find that phone. Or even with a more innocent thing that we do, if, if the power goes out at your house, you'll go in every room flipping on a light switch as if the power's going to come on. And you go, duh, the power's out, in two minutes you're going to do it again. Because it's a habit, you don't even think about it. Or, <laughs> if you're like me, you go to the refrigerator 20 times and open that thing as if it's magically going to have more food in it than the last time you looked in it. I can tell I had a root on that one. <laughs> See, we just sometimes we just do things so mindlessly and not even think about it. Well, listen, we, we have a sin nature, so those things come naturally to us. Covetousness is in our DNA. We were born with it. We were conceived in it. And so if we don't take conscious steps to realize it's within us, we will, we will do it, we'll think it, and we won't even recognize what we're doing. We have to pay attention. We don't ever need to put our spiritual life on cruise control. Christianity ought never be on cruise control. And sometimes we, we, there just needs to be times of intentional examination in our life about our hearts and lives and where and when we go to the Word and to the Lord in prayer. And we really need to take inventory of the things that have our hearts, the things that take hold of our passion. John Calvin once said that our hearts are an idol factory. Our hearts are an idol factory, producing idol after idol after idol. So let me ask you this. You don't have to answer out loud. What captivated your thoughts this week? What, what got your passions? What got you excited? What got you up out of bed? What captivated your thoughts this week? What did you pursue in your search of satisfaction? If we could print out a weekly report of your thought activity in the past week, and we could print it out in the form of a pie chart, and it showed percentage-wise... Your thoughts, what's at the top of the list? What gets your passion? What percentage of the time were you earnestly seeking the things of the Lord? If we don't recognize the problem, we can't even begin to make an effort to fix it. We must be conscious of our idols. Listen, we have to be aware of our own personal idols. I ought to be able to go to you and I'm not... I probably won't do this, but if I did, and I said, hey, what's your idols? You ought to be able to fire them off like that. What do you struggle with? What, do you, what, what captivates your mind? What do you need victory over? What do you need repentance over? And if you say that you don't have any at all, then I'm really concerned. We need to recognize these things. And I, I find this interesting too, and I'm fixing to get to my second thought here. But I find it interesting that when you look at the Ten Commandments, idolatry is number one, and covetousness is number ten. 
And sandwiched between those two are every single sin that a person can commit. And I'm, I'm not just talking about limiting it to the Ten Commandments. I'm saying in a very real sense, every sin we can commit is somewhere between idolatry and covetousness. That's how serious God takes this. Recognize it, repent, and reach out to God for help to kill that desire. We ought to think about these. God, what, am I, what do I need to repent of? What is my idol? What am I putting ahead of you upon the throne of my own heart? We, we ought to have these types of examination in our life. Now listen, we don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to beat ourselves over things that Jesus was already beaten for. But at the same time, if we're not thinking in these terms, we're not growing. And we're not, we're not even trying to be closer to God. <clears throat> we need to be conscious of our own idols and our covetousness. But secondly, we need to think about comparison. If we're going to defeat and kill covetousness in our life, we've got to understand comparison. Look at verse 2. Set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And so, we have a contrast here. We have a comparison between the heavenly and the earthly, the things of God and the things of the world. That's a right kind of comparison. We ought to be thinking about that comparison and where we fall with that in our thoughts. But there is a wrong kind of comparison, and that is not of things of the earth. The things of the earth that other people seek can be a great distraction to us. They can be a great hindrance to us. Remember this. This is really important. Comparison and covetousness go hand in hand. Uh, there's a quote that I came across years ago, and I've never forgotten it. It's attributed to President Roosevelt. But President Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of all joy. Comparison is the thief of all joy. And that is because comparison with others often has a filter that blocks out the negative reality of their situation. Listen, I, I can't say this loud enough here. You better be really careful wishing that you had somebody else's life. Because number one, what you're saying is, God, I'm not grateful for anything you've done in my life. You, you've not been good to me. In fact, you've been so much better to them that I loathe my life and wish that I had their life. You better not ever say that out loud. And if you think it, you better say, God, forgive me and take this thought because I'm going to tell you why. When you so greatly desire to have somebody else's life or even aspects of somebody else's life, you can almost never see the fine print that comes with that. I'm just going to give you a couple examples before I move on from this, but I really want to drive this home. Uh, I used to work uh, a pest control route years ago and uh, I had a a monthly service that I did for my customers. And at one point, had almost 300 customers, and my route covered about three counties. And there was a house, I remember, in Greene County. And it, they were a very wealthy family, um, had a successful business. And, man, they had a setup down there in the middle of nowhere. It was like the Ponderosa. I mean, it was a big wood log cabin, uh, overlooking a lake out in the woods and, you know, all kind of outbuildings. It was nice. And I used to go out there and I would, 
I would service that place, you know, and sometimes they were, they were super nice people, just as salt-of-the-earth people, as nice as you could ever meet. And, but they weren't always there. And, man, I would just, man, I would just serve. I'd just look around. I was, I was just amazed, you know. And, you know, you think, man, it would be nice to have a place like this, you know. And, but anyway, um, time went on, and um, I had a preacher friend of mine call me and say, hey, there's a, there's a, a baby in our church, just a little older than an infant, battling for their life up at uh, Birmingham Children's Hospital. And will you come with me and we'll go pray with the family? I said, sure. So I go with this preacher, and when I walk in the lobby of Children's Hospital in Birmingham, I see this couple that owns that property down there. I said, hey, what what are you all doing here? Is everything all right, you know? And you can just see the weight is all over them, you know. And they said, no, it's not all right. I said, our son's got advanced stages of leukemia, and we don't even know if he's going to make it. And they pull up their phone, and they showed me, <laughs> they showed me a picture of that little child with tubes everywhere, you know. And uh, I thought to myself then, I wonder what they'd trade for that child. I guarantee you they'd trade all of it and wouldn't think twice about it. So like I said, would, would you trade places? Would, would, you, would you give your child cancer so you could have that? I wouldn't do it. Here's another example. Um, I remember reading this years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Scott Weiland was the lead singer of a rock band known as Stone Temple Pilots. They were very popular when I was growing up in my B.C. days. And uh, he's, I mean, he's one of the, the tops in rock history. You think about Scott Weiland. And he died of a drug overdose in 2015, and, of course, you know how social media does. Oh, R.I.P. Scott and rock legend and, you know, rock on and all the cliches that people like to do. And in the middle of all that, his wife wrote an open letter about her husband, Scott. And I have never forgotten the words. It's too long to read here. I'll just give you the cliff notes and then I'll read one section of it. And she made the statement that, that drugs had destroyed her husband, that that rock and roll lifestyle had destroyed him. And she said in the last years of his life before he died, um, his managers would push him out on stage just high out of his mind, couldn't even talk, and had him just move his mouth to a track that was playing. They were literally using him just to make money. Uh, Nobody ever stopped him. Nobody tried to help him. You wonder how many people around him actually love that man. And... Here's the section of that letter that I want to read from his wife after his death. She said, This is the final step in our long goodbye to Scott. Even though I felt we had no other choice, maybe we never should have let him go. Or maybe these last few years of separation were his parting gift to us. The only way he could think to soften what he knew would one day crush us deep into our souls. Over the last few years... I could hear his sadness and confusion when he'd call me late into the night, often crying about his inability to separate himself from the negative people and bad choices. I won't say he can rest now or that he's in a better place. He belongs with his children barbecuing in the backyard and waiting for a Notre Dame football game to come on. We are angry and sad about this loss, but we are most devastated that he chose to give up. Noah and Lucy, that's their children, 
Noah and Lucy never sought perfection from their dad. They just kept hoping for a little effort. If you're a parent not giving your best effort, all anyone asks is that you try just a little harder and don't give up. Progress, not perfection, is what your children are praying for. Our hope for Scott has died, but there is still hope for others. Let's choose to make this the first time we don't glorify this tragedy with talk of rock and roll and the demons that, by the way, don't have to come with it. Skip the depressing t-shirt with the years 1967 to 2015 on it. Instead, use the money to take a kid to a ball game or out for ice cream. What are how many people have seen Scott Weiland and said, man, he's got it all. I want that kind of fame. I want that kind of money. I want that kind of recognition. And you hear the pain in his wife's voice because of everything that it stole. Again, I say you don't often get to read the fine print when you begin the game of comparison. You better be careful with that. There's only two things that can come from comparing yourself to other people. You're either going to look down on other people and get a big head and think that you're better than them, or you're going to look at them and be jealous because you think they're above you and you'll want what they have. And God's not within a hundred miles of any of that. We have to get away. If we're going to kill covetousness in our own life, we're going to have to kill comparison as well. Listen, the only thing that we ever need to compare ourselves with is this right here. God, where am I and where do I need to be? If it's any standard other than that, you're going to be a slave to whatever standard you serve. God help us all with a comparison game. Number three, if we're going to kill covetousness in our heart and life, we're going to have to know about contentment. Look at verse 3 again. <clears throat> For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. He's reminding us not only of who we are in Christ, but what we have and what we're promised in Christ, what belongs to us, even things that we haven't fully received or fully realized yet that come in the afterlife. We have so... He's reminding us of what we have. <laughs> what we have is amazing as Christians. Let me say this. Contentment is the greatest weapon against covetousness and sin in general. Satan has nothing to offer content people. He has nothing to offer those who are just happy in Jesus. There's nothing... I mean... He has nothing to offer. What, what have you got, Satan, that's better than what Christ has given me and what He's done and who He is in my life? 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. You say, well, how is godliness with contentment great gain? I mean, it's never put any money in the bank. It's never uh, given me a new car or, you know, bolstered my 401k. How is godliness with contentment great gain? And I'll tell you. I think a great way to think about contentment is like a drain plug in a bathtub. You know, if you, if you put a drain plug in a bathtub, it will retain the water. It will fill it with water, and then you can enjoy a nice hot bath. But on the other hand, covetousness is like an open drain. It's like pulling that drain plug out. And even though the water's flowing, it never accumulates. 
it, it will, you'll never be able to take a bath in it because it never accumulates anything. It leaves as quick as it comes. That's what covetousness does to us in our life. The drain is always open. We can't ever appreciate the love of God, the blessings of God, the, the blessings of relationships and people in our lives. We can never enjoy those things because the drain is always open. Just come, it just leaves as fast as it comes. Covetousness won't even allow us to recognize and enjoy what we have. Charles Spurgeon, that patron saint of the Baptist that Derek mentioned this morning, I'll never forget that. I'll never look at him the same again. <laughs> but Charles Spurgeon said, it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes us happy. I mean, think about that for a minute. You can have everything and enjoy none of it. Or you can have little and enjoy it a lot. Personally, I, I prefer the latter, don't you? What a shame, what a disease to have everything and have and just be so blessed and not even be able to enjoy it or even recognize it. I tell you, it's a cancer that has eaten the American people alive. This is the kind of stuff that breeds that entitlement mentality. Hey, listen, if you, if you really are determined to play the comparison game, here's what you need to think about. Compare where you are with where you deserve to be. Because where we all deserve to be is in hell right now. Suffering the wrath and torment of God because we've offended a holy God by our sin. That's where we deserve to be. So when I look at where I am versus where I deserve to be, everything is north of there. We're doing good and even better. When I compare where I should be with where I'm going to be for all eternity, how in the world could we ever complain? Contentment is such a great weapon. It's such a great blessing. And sometimes it's just good to take inventory of the blessings of God and thank Him for how good He's been to us. You know, we sing that hymn, and it would probably be good to do this for um, the last song is... Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Make it a habit to consciously praise God for specific things. And if you're down in the dumps, I dare you to try this. Go write out a list of everything God has done for you from the time you got saved to the time you're in right now. And I promise you, it'll, it'll help you. It'll help you. Contentment is such a great weapon. Um, think about this too. Covetousness, complaining, and unthankfulness, they all go hand in hand. And therefore, the greatest weapons against covetousness are thankfulness and praise. It's impossible to complain and to praise God out of the same mouth at the same time. It's impossible. And like I said, if you develop some intentional habits of praise, I mean, I'm serious, when you pray, and I hope that you do have a private prayer life. We, we heard about that this morning. Um, if, if you, and when you pray in private, start your prayer out with thankfulness. Before you ask for anything, I, I often think about it like this. I really do mean this. I have almost developed a way of thinking about praying to where I have to thank God for a certain amount of things before I have permission to ask Him for anything. Now, that's not in the Bible. Don't misunderstand me. And God wants to hear from His children, there's no doubt. That's just, that's just something that I have set for myself 
that if at all possible, I'm going to make it a focus to praise God before I launch into something that could even possibly sound like I'm complaining or discontent. And you'd be surprised how much better your prayer life will be if you do that. I, you know, it, the Bible even talks about you know, coming into His courts with praise, coming into His presence with thankfulness. And you know, even talks about in Philippians about when we pray and we thank God for specific things and we think on good things, that's when the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so we need to count our many blessings and see what God has done. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Fourthly and lastly, and I'm done. If we're going to kill covetousness in our hearts and lives, we're going to have to know about Christ. And I'm talking specifically not only about Him and who He is, but also about the gospel. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. That will help you on a bad day. This is our future. This is our inheritance. This is the promise of God to His children, an eternity with Him without any of the things that make this life hard. It's an, we can't even imagine. It's so much better than I could ever emphasize and yet, we don't often focus on that. Let me say this. You may not be content in Christ because you don't know Christ. I'm not trying to be a doubt caster. I'm just throwing it out there, something to think about because Christ is the bread of life. Christ is the living water. And the gospel is the only real answer to the problem of covetousness. And listen, there's no way for me to know every detail of a person's life. But if you are saved, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what trials you're going through, no matter what heartache you're experiencing, this much is always going to be true of your life if you're saved. Concerning your past, Christ has died for your sin. God the Father punished Him for all the wrong that you did and that I did. He rose from the dead three days later. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody else is going to do that except when He says, hey, get up. He conquered death, hell, and the grave on behalf of His people. We have a victorious Savior. You visit any other grave in the world, their body is going to be there. Millions of people go to Mecca every year. Guess what? Muhammad's bones are still there. He didn't get up. He can't get you up. The tomb of Jesus, every year without fail, and it's not even close, the tomb of Jesus... The, the historical site where it's thought that Jesus rose from the dead, I've been there myself, that grave is the most visited grave in all of the world. Every year, over 45 million tourists go to Israel. And they're going, most likely for one reason. And His name is Jesus Christ. They want to see the place where He walked, the place where He preached, the place where He worked miracles, the place where He died on the cross, and more than anything else, the place where He rose from the dead. The most visited tomb in all the world doesn't even have a body in it. That's our Savior. That's who we serve. It's not a God made with hands. A God that's made by us is less than we are. We serve a true and living God. That's, that's true of our past if we're saved. No matter where you're at in life, that's always going to be true. The second thing that's always true of us if we're saved, 
concerning our present. We are saved. We are born again. We are blood-bought. We're children of the Most High God. We're the bride of Christ. We're forgiven. We're accepted by God. And He is guiding our life. That's always going to be true of you if you're saved. And so even in the worst trial of your life, you can ask, hey, is Jesus still alive? Are you still saved? Is He still guiding your steps? Is He still with you? Has He forsaken you? These are the things we can always focus on. They'll be true. Concerning our future, if you're saved, this is always going to be true. We will be with Christ for all eternity. We just read it. And if you're struggling with covetousness, then by default it means that you're not satisfied. The question is why? Why are you so restless? Because one of the hallmarks of a mature Christian, you can find a lot about this in Hebrews 4, is that we have found that rest in Christ. We're no longer hungry for the things of the world because we've had the living bread. We've, we're not thirsty because we've had the living water. Listen, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to have wants. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to have desires. In fact, God gives us desires in our heart that when He grants them, will bring us good and Him glory, which ought to be our desire as Christians anyway. Um, but it means if you're struggling with covetousness, you're, you're not satisfied. You're not satisfied with Christ. You know, the difference between just having a desire and being covetous is if you're, if you're covetous, it's almost like there's an ultimatum that comes with it. I'm not going to be happy unless this happens. I can't possibly have any joy unless this comes to pass. There's no way that I can fully praise God unless this prayer gets answered. Do you ever do that? You may not say it out loud, but do you do it in your heart and mind? I can, you get so obsessed with a change in your circumstances. You get so obsessed with that next big thing, whether it's, whether it's relief from the trial that you're in, whether it's a promotion at work, or maybe it's a bigger house, or a better car, or, or maybe... Um, you know, just, just something you've been praying about for a long time and you think to yourself, things will never be the same if this doesn't happen. You may be waiting a long time. And here's what I've learned to pray. This is what my prayers have changed to lately concerning Leah's health. Is Lord, yes, healer. Yes, absolutely. I pray for that every day. But it may be a while. It may never happen in this lifetime. So what I've learned to pray for is God... Give us victory before the victory. Give us peace before the prize. God, would you give us your presence before you bring us through to the other side? Because see, when we ask God for grace and wisdom, He, he promises to give those things to us. But a lot of times those things aren't good enough. We want answers. We want, we want what we want, when we want it, and that's right now. And God, you just do it. You, you know, I know what I'm doing. You don't. And this is what needs to happen, and it needs to happen now. And I'm not going to be satisfied until it happens. Well, just, God says, okay, just be unsatisfied then. Are you satisfied this morning in Christ? And if not, then why not? He's just a prayer away. Lord, take this from me. Help me to kill this. God, give me satisfaction. Replace this covetousness with contentment. 
And you'll have such a better life. Such a better life.